This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Prime Spark, the podcast that brings you conversations that inspire, celebrate, and empower women over 55. The second women's revolution is here, and it is time for us to fuel a spark that will ignite your way forward, illuminate your path, and reflect your gifts in the world. Now, here is your host for Prime Spark, Sarah Hart. Hi, and welcome to Prime Spark. I'm Sarah Hart, and I'm so happy you're here. Prime Spark is designed for women over 55 with a goal to help us all live our happiest, most fulfilling, and productive lives now and in the future. The mission of Prime Spark is to change the way our society sees and treats older women. That's a big mission which only means we all need to be involved and we need to get started now. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Ellen Snee, a woman whose work I greatly admire. Ellen Snee has been at the forefront of women's leadership for more than 25 years. Dr. Snee brings strategy, research, and executive experience to global companies and their female talent. Her original research at Harvard University on women's experience in roles of authority formed the foundation of her work with Fortune 500 companies such as Cisco, Goodyear, Marriott, Pfizer, and Schwab. Later, as the Global VP of Leadership Development at VMware, she launched its business initiative, VM Women, to attract, develop, advance, and retain talented women. Ellen is a member of the International Women's Forum, an invitation-only organization of global women leaders. She is an advisor to She Can and Rise Up, organizations that empower young women in Africa and Asia to become leaders. Dr. Snee is the author of the recently published book, Lead, How Women in Charge Claim Their Authority. She continues to coach and advise women leaders and executives worldwide and frequently speaks at conferences. Welcome, Ellen. I'm so happy you're here. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to be yeah. part of Prime Spark. This is fun. So you can see it in the background, but here is Ellen's book. I highly recommend it. It is a wonderful read. So, so as we get started, Ellen, just tell me, do you experience getting older? And if you do, what is that experience? And if you don't, why is it that you think you don't? Well, the one way that I do experience getting older is physically. I'm not as um, active or probably in shape as I was decades ago. But aside from that, I actually have to remind myself of my age because I feel as involved, engaged, and running as fast as I ever have. 
In fact, in the last year, I think I have worked harder and faster and more effectively than I ever had. I think I, I, I like to, early on, um, I learned a trick that you should never use adjectives and numbers in the same sentences, sentence when referring to age. So you can either say someone is 50 years old or they're middle-aged. But the safest way is not to put the two together. And that helped me begin to see that a lot of the adjectives we use around age can either liberate or confine. And I have never wanted to be bound by my chronological age. I think the reason I don't experience being old is I have always had a new chapter in mind. So when I was in graduate school, I wanted to start a consulting business. When I started the consulting business, I wanted to go back to being a coach. When I was a coach, I was eager to work in a corporation. And when I left corporate life, I decided to write a book. And now I'm planning yet another chapter. So I live life in 15, 15 year increments. And that keeps me from feeling old. I love it. That is just, that's a magnificent way to see it. You know, it's really interesting because a couple of years ago, I had a radio show called Prime Spark. And I interviewed 50 some women who were all over 50. And I asked them the question that I asked you. And I bet 90% of them or more said exactly what you said, that physically they felt a bit older because they simply couldn't do all the things in the way they used to do it, or they had some aches and pains. But other than that, they felt better than they'd ever felt. They felt more themselves. They felt more energized, get tired, but more energized. And they were interested in. So it's really a fascinating thing how that seems to be true for a lot of women that you get to 50, 55, 60, and all of a sudden, things really start to open up. They don't start to close down if we don't let them. Right. I think part of that is that at that age, you begin to put things in perspective and not care about some of the things that kept you constrained. You know, you're better able to cope with the fact that maybe everyone won't like you, <laughs> or maybe someone will say something that's hurtful, but you know, you're going to survive. And when you reach that point where clarity about what you want to do is greater than the compulsion and fear of what you should do, it's extremely liberating. I think that's absolutely so true. I know that I, along with a lot of women saying that they felt better more themselves, many, many would say, you know, I, I just don't care so much anymore what people think of me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm, it's not that I'm not still nice, but it, I don't care. I mean, if people don't like me, well, you know, they don't like me. And so um, that is a huge freeing thing. I think 
probably for everybody, but really for women, because I think we are so brought up to to want to be liked, you know, to have friends, to to be in, to be in, to be so forth. And so I think that's a huge liberating. You know, in your book, I found many interesting things. One of the ones that I found fascinating was um, the difference you make between performance and promotion. Can you talk about that? That was fascinating to me. Sure. Um, this is definitely one of my favorite parts of the book, and um, I think of greatest interest to readers. This began about maybe 15 years ago, I was at a conference and, you know, we all go to conferences over and over and over again. And I always say, if I go home with one idea, I'm happy. But this time it was a presentation on competency skills, which we all know are, you know, how people get measured these days. And this one slide just changed everything for me. And it was listing what competencies are associated with high performers. And they're all the things that women do extraordinarily well, such as managing people well, getting work done, keeping it all organized, delivering on time. I'm not saying that men don't, but women really work very hard to be extremely high performers. But what happens is then they don't get the promotion and they don't understand it. And this research showed that performance is necessary, but not sufficient for promotability that there are additional things that you have to be able to demonstrate before you are considered for senior level promotions. And the first is in the area of relationships, which in general, women excel at. They have great emotional intelligence. They care and they reach out and they listen. But these relationships are with senior executives with their boss and their boss's boss, et cetera, et cetera. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because it's the senior executives who weigh in on who gets the senior promotions. And if you're not known by them, it's hard for them to vote for you in that discussion. And women are hesitant to reach out and to be known. There was a book maybe 15 years ago called Toot Your Own Horn by Peggy, I forget her last name, Um, but women don't like to toot their own horn. But if you don't let executives know about your work and who you are and what you're capable of, you're, you're going to really be at risk. The second thing is to be an executive and be promoted into one of those roles requires demonstrating that you'll handle crises well, that you'll be able to think on your feet, not just do what's on your to-do list for the day. You need to be able to show that you can stretch. And so women need to figure out how to get stretch assignments or projects 
so that they have the opportunity to demonstrate more broadly their ability to do more than their area of competence. And the third is really about being a good corporate citizen in the sense of understanding what the culture is all about. What are the norms? You don't want to be making major faux pas in an organization if you expect to be promoted. So those three areas are things that when women pay more attention to, they rise more quickly in an organization. Yeah, that is fascinating. I just, I loved reading that part of your book. And I I asked two questions and I don't know which one I want. I'm going to ask both of them (laughs) and you do whatever you want with them. How do women not only learn these things, but, but understand they need to learn them. I mean, if, I mean, if hopefully they pick up your book and read it, but if they don't do that, how do young women know that they need to do this? Number one. And number two, do men know this? I mean, do they automatically do it or why is it a particularly women thing, woman thing? Well, I From the beginning of my career, at the beginning of my career, I decided that gender comparisons just lead you into a conundrum. There's, you you don't make any progress. And so when I was doing my studies and thinking about my research area, I decided then and there, there and then, that I would not compare women to men because that had not gotten us very far because basically women were being told, do it like the men, wear the little silk ties, you know, be bossy, be aggressive. And that wasn't working. And so my questions are always, what are women's strengths How can they build on those? And how can they be more effective leaders in roles of authority by coming at it from inside out? From inside out and then moving out to relationships and systems. So how can women understand this? Well, that's why I wrote the book, because I felt I had 20 plus years of education, experience, and working with so many smart women that I learned a great deal. So I like to think of the book as a coach in a book, um, that it's something a woman can use over and over again, not something that, you know, one and done, that it's not going to create magic in one reading. It's kind of a a companion piece. Um, I think Rather than saying, how can they learn this? I would suggest that women start from inside out and ask, what is it they want? What do they want to do with their career? Where are they drawn? What is calling them? You know, I was a Catholic nun for 18 years, and we spent a great deal of time in prayer and reflection on what was God calling us to do? 
And I learned ways to listen to my inner voice and bring that into the world and make choices based on that. When I got to the corporate sector, I realized that that same dynamic is available to anyone. You don't have to frame it as the voice of God. You can frame it as your own inner truth. And so my suggestion to women is to start by listening, because too often women are so busy, the last person they listen to is themselves. And then starting with that, bring it to trusted allies, friends, family, colleagues, coaches, mentors, sponsors, strangers, and see what kind of reaction they get. And then above all, pay attention. Pay attention to how organizations work. Pay attention to the feedback you're getting and pay attention to what's happening to your male colleagues and ask questions. Don't assume you know why someone was promoted and someone wasn't. Ask, find out, ask for advice, tell people you want to advance. Tell people you want help in getting there. I think too often women are reticent and shy and um, really hesitant to do all that. I am fascinated with the number of pivots you've had in your life. I'm sorry, but that's what was striking me as you were talking. So you have done so many completely different kinds of things. So I get bored. How how did you make a decision to become a nun? And how did you make a decision to stop becoming a nun? Not being a nun. Yeah. So before I decided to become a nun, when I was 12 years old, I was the oldest in an Irish Catholic family. And we always had the local priest who is also from a big family. And he would come over for dinner of hot dogs and we'd play cards after. And one night when he was leaving, my father asked him to give us his blessing, which was kind of what was done in those days. And so we all knelt down and Father Tom blessed us. And as I was getting up, I thought, ah, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And without hesitation, I announced to the world, I'm going to be a priest when I grow up. Love it. So I wanted to be a priest long before and much more fervently than I ever wanted to be a nun. And, you know, the three adults just looked at each other like, who's going to tell her the truth? And he finally said, well, you know, Ellen, I think you mean a nun. And I said, no, I don't want to be a nun. I want to be a priest. (laughs) And he said, well, you know, girls can't become priests. And that was the beginning of my life's work to change things for women. So when I couldn't become a priest and I went to a Jesuit university and I couldn't become a Jesuit because I was female, I eventually found a group of women nuns, the religious of the Sacred Heart, who were considered the female Jesuits. And I thought, I have found my group. They were educators. They were smart. They were talented. They were a global organization. It had everything I wanted, you know, commitment to wonderful work, 
we educated girls and women and um, you know, it, it just made sense. And so then you want to know why I left. Yeah, because you, you were a nun then for 18 years. That's a very long time. That's right. And during that time, I had many wonderful experiences um, and some challenges. Originally, I was going to go on and study theology and teach in a seminary and change the church from inside out. But the church became more and more conservative and I felt that wasn't going to be uh, where I could use my gifts. And so after much prayer and discernment, I decided I would continue with my work. I was a student at Harvard at the time studying women's psychology and that I would take that work into the world of business instead of into the world of the church. That is a wonderful story. Approximately how, a, what age were you when you announced you wanted to be a priest? 12. 12. 12. Oh, yeah. okay. 12. 12 years old. Amazing. Yeah. So back to your book. I just had to ask you about that in the middle of that because I was just fascinated with it. Um, one of the other things among many that I was really interested in what you talked about was women having authority over other women. Mm-hmm. Can you say a bit about that? I found that really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was studying at Harvard, I went there to study women's development. I wanted to develop some tools for interviewing women when I was a nun. And I wanted to understand women's development by listening to girls and women, not saying how they're similar or different to men. But while I was there, I also became interested in leadership. And I took a course at um, the Kennedy School at Harvard. And we had, it was um, a time when there were people from around the world. You know, we had a, um, a general from the Philippine army and a woman who had given birth in prison in the Philippines. We had Germans from both sides of the Berlin Wall, and it was the year the wall went down. So it's a fascinating group. But a lot of it was about the soft skills. And I felt like, yeah, you know, yeah, you're supposed to listen and communicate well. And, you know, I had seen these incredible women in my order do that so effectively that I didn't get what was hard. But the guys around me certainly seemed to be struggling with it. And so I started asking myself the question, if women are so good at leadership, what is the challenge for them? And I realized that it was holding roles of authority to really be in a position of power and responsibility. So I decided that I would interview women, both those in mixed gender environments and women who worked in predominantly female environments to see if there was a difference. And as I did the interviews and analyzed them and did the questionnaires and analyzed that, I found several striking themes that have proven to be true over time. The first was what I call unspoken expectations 
that women have of each other across a relationship of authority. And this plays out if you are someone who has a woman boss and you are a woman. You often have unconscious and definitely unspoken expectations that she will understand you because you're both women, that she will be supportive and listen and be there for you. And you have these expectations that you would not have of a male boss, but it's, it's a form of unconscious bias or unconscious expectations that we don't talk about until we trip up on it, until we're disappointed by a boss because she didn't deliver for us. And we had an expectation because we're both women. The second one that was quite striking was in an interview where a woman kept talking about having one eye on her role and one eye on the relationships. And I thought, you know, I knew enough about eyes to, to know something about lazy eye, which is a condition where your eyes look in two different directions. And after studying that, I learned that if it's not corrected, you go blind in one eye because the brain can't keep computing these two different spheres that the eyes are looking at. And so that became a powerful metaphor for me in thinking and talking about women in roles of authority, that we can tend to have one eye on our role and what we have to accomplish and our responsibility, and one eye on the relationships we're in as we're working. And it can lead to women being called the B boss, you know, where she overstresses the role or being told she doesn't have what it takes for a promotion because she's too, too soft, too nice, too kind to the people. And so we have to figure out how to do our own eye training to get our vision to focus on the work ahead. I just love that metaphor. It is, it is so powerful um, and helpful. Mm-hmm. And, and really helpful. I think of um, one of the things um, that we saw in a fairly recent election was that a woman can't be considered to be both nice and competent. Mm-hmm. You know, a man can be considered to be nice and competent, but apparently a woman can't be considered to be nice and competent. And so that it may be that that a woman um, may have become blind to one of those because of trying to of trying to look at you know in both directions. That's right. fascinating. Yeah, that that was actually a third theme that I explored, which was the tyranny of nice and kind. And people talk today about the um, uh, what's the phrase they use where women really have to overcome the expectation that they will be nice and kind or 
the fact that if they are, they're not perceived to be competent. Right. right. Well, it, in, everyone, you need to read this book because it is really, it is fascinating and you will learn so much from it. So you have had so many different parts to your life. Um, what, what kinds of dreams do you still have? Well, I mean, what's next? Is, is there something next, something that you still haven't done that you really dream about? Well, there are two. Um, I dream about holding babies. I never had children, so I don't have grandchildren of my own, but I try to be a, an extra grandmother to anyone's children I can because I love little ones. Um, but yes, there is a next chapter. I'm hoping to be involved with a project to work on um, addressing economic disadvantages for women post-COVID, especially for women of color. And I think that we have seen, there's a lot of discussion right now about the C-session, that women are leaving jobs at great numbers. And I, I was saying, um, when the pandemic first happened, I was asked, um, didn't I think that all this working from home was going to be great for women, that at last we were going to have the ability. And I was I was was and am an agent of doom, a voice of doom, because I think the pandemic has set us back in multiple ways, perhaps decades and um, I want to do something about that. So I'm hoping to uh, spend some time researching different ways that NGOs or um, companies or uh, uh, academics are working to address these issues and to get involved with that post book. Well, good luck. That is such important and needed work. Good luck with that. Thank um, you. I'm eager to get going. I'm sure you are. So of all the things you have done, what, what three things are you proudest of? Um, I'll go in reverse. One thing that gives me great joy and satisfaction uh, beyond the book, the book actually does, um, is that when I was at VMware, a technology company in Silicon Valley, I had the opportunity to start an initiative on women. It was after Lean In had come out and there was great interest in the Valley. And so I was known as the person, you know, really committed to this. And the head of HR came to me and said, the CEO's interested, go do it. And it was like, uh, you know, like Christmas and birthdays of decades all rolled up in one because I had seen the good, the bad, and the ugly in how programs are rolled out. And I knew exactly what we should do, which was to start with the top executives, to make them accountable and the leaders, to run it like a business initiative, which means collect tons of data present the data to the execs, 
And then they'll see what they need to do and then help them to make that happen and eventually tie it to um, bonuses and financial um, rewards. And over three years, by three years, it had become a more diverse program. It started with women because there, there are more women. It's more familiar to people. And there was more research on um, issues around women. But within three years, the executive bonuses are now tied to what they do for diversity and inclusion. Fantastic. Yeah, so that, and then the second thing was we had a very strong connection to Stanford's Clayman Institute on um, research on women, and they helped us with the program. And they were starting a new leadership, women's center on, um, research center on women's leadership. And VMware um, partnered with them and uh, for naming contributed. So it's now the VM Women Leadership Center at Stanford. And that that gives me great, wow. great joy. Wow. Um, I think the second thing would be less dramatic, but equally as profound, which is just thinking of the individual women that I have worked with and how their lives have been transformed by our journey together and helping them to see what they want, figure out how to get it, pursue it and be successful. That, you know, that's the, the kind of heartthrob um, delight. And um, I, I think the book is the third thing because the book is a real legacy of everything I've had the opportunity to learn and to really um, distill it in a way that is easily read, very applicable, and has received excellent feedback from um, women and men of all stages in life. So those are the three great joys. Oh, fantastic. What a wonderful life and so much more to come. So... Yeah. Ellen, if people would like to get in touch with you, how might they do that? Yes, the simplest way is we have a brand new website. It's www.ellensnee, my name, E-L-L-E-N-S-N-E-E. -E -E. And on there, there's information about how to reach out to me as a coach or as a speaker or a consultant. There's information on the programs we run and the connections we have and anything else, any other questions you have, um, it's one-stop shopping. Fantastic. So that's our time today. Please join us again. You can find out Prime Spark podcast on every popular outlet. You can find out more about Prime Spark at www.primesparkwomen.com. Thank you so much to my guest, Dr. Ellen Snee. And don't forget, you can find her at www.ellensnee, that's E-L-L-E-N-S-N-E-E.com. So thank you for being with us. Take good care, spread tolerance and love. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for joining us on Prime Spark. With each episode, Sarah Hart brings you conversations that inspire, celebrate, and empower women over 55. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes about remarkable, experienced women, go to EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available at Spotify, Apple Podcast, and most other major podcast sites. The second women's revolution is here, and we hope that you use the insights you've gained here to fuel the spark that will ignite your way forward, illuminate your path, and reflect your gifts in the world. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.